the reading of the words from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor against one another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. We, we, when reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure, when slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The grass withers and the flowers fade. situated first I'm used to the Britney Spears get up with a little heads up but I think this is just going to be there um, we have <laughs> we're good. we could afford maybe some music stands are a little sturdier but anyway we'll go with this well good morning once again sorry this is we didn't do this ahead of time as you can tell <laughs> All right, so if you have a Bible um, and you are not already there, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Can y'all hear me here? Okay, all right, this is comfortable. I'm just going to try and hang out here. Um, if you're new with us this morning, my name is Hunter. I am not the pastor here, which means I get to say anything I want and you can't fire me, <laughs> right? My lifestyle will not be affected by anything I say on the stage. But all joking aside, um, let's pray before we dig into God's word. Father, just as before the Exodus, uh, your people cried out for help and you heard them. God, you saw them. God, and you dwelt with them. 
and you delivered them, Lord. I ask now that we, uh, before the ultimate exodus, exodus, the ultimate deliverance, God, um, on the other side of glory, now, God, we sit before your word as people who are needy, God, as people who are broken, God, as people who are oh so fragile, and we ask, God, once more that you would help us. Lord, I pray with Paul that I would not come with any uh, eloquence or, or anything in and of myself, but I would simply present Christ and Christ crucified. And this morning in these uh, 30 to 45 minutes, God, a demonstration of the Spirit's power would be at work among your people. God, in your body to form us into your image. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We've been plodding along in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you are unfamiliar with 1 Corinthians, it is a letter, um, just like you may or may not write a letter now. Probably more typically you would write an email uh, nowadays, or you may just tweet something or text it. But this is just a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And so we took a couple chapters, or a couple weeks, excuse me, to go through chapter 1, then we saw two weeks ago chapter 2, last week was chapter 3, and now we're in chapter 4. And I think the best way to look at chapter 4 here is really just a continuation of chapters 1 through 3. So chapters 1 through 4 really make up Paul's uh, first major section in his letter to the church in Corinth. And in this section, Paul focuses entirely on the message of the gospel, so what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't, And he focuses on God's vision for the church. So the kind of people we are called to be and the kind of lives we are called to live. And what I want us to consider this morning before we dig into this text is that as Paul addresses a church that was plagued by sin, sins including envy, jealousy, tribalism, heretical theology, and last but not least, sexual sin, which, by the way, included a dude sleeping with his stepmom, in the midst of all of that, Paul devotes the first fourth of this letter to address the Corinthians' unity in the body and their conformity to the gospel. And I think that should strike us, because I would bet if each of us to a person were to be asked, if we were Paul, what would we start out with on our letter? I think to a man we would all say sexual sin. And while that's important, and it should and will no doubt be addressed, actually next week we'll talk about that, I think Paul would say that that is a symptom of a much deeper disease, but it is not the cause of the illness. The cause of the illness, according to Paul, is their gross misunderstanding of the gospel, which led to a perverted picture of the church. So here in chapter 4, we see Paul address three misunderstandings as it relates to the gospel of Christ and the people of God. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. These will serve as our three points this morning. I think Job may have put them in the worship guide as well, so I appreciate him doing that. Um, So first, Paul is going to address their haughty hearts. They're haughty hearts. It just means prideful hearts, but haughty just sounds better, and you kind of breathe out the H's, haughty hearts. Um, Second, Paul addresses a nearsighted gospel. And third, Paul addresses their way of formation. All right, so first Paul addresses their haughty hearts, and I'll quit saying that. (laughs) Look with me once again at verses 1 through 7. Paul says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 
I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, so to exceed what is in the scriptures, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, it may look from the outset like Paul is addressing how he views himself here, and he is, but he is also implicitly addressing the way the Corinthians view him as well and the hearts that form and shape that view. So before learning can occur, especially for adults with a fully developed prefrontal cortex, neurobiologists show us and tell us that an unlearning first must take place. So um, this is true of the Corinthians. This is true of us now. This is just true of humanity. And to paraphrase Jesus from Matthew chapter 12, before um, someone else can take up new residence, a home must first be vacated. And the issue for the Corinthians here, the things they have to unlearn, can really be boiled down to just two things. It's the pride in their hearts and the theology in their heads. This is the source of all their sin. And these are present in the church because the church in Corinth was capitulating to the culture of Corinth. So you have this highly secular culture in Corinth that was based around consumerism, entertainment, accomplishment, and performance. And the virtues and values of the culture were slowly seeping their way into the church at large. That's why as a people, even today, it is good to be aware of the culture we're immersed in. There's a short little story I heard recently that kind of gets this point across. There's two fish swimming in an ocean. One fish looks to the other and says, hey, the water's great today. The other fish says, what's water, right? One fish was aware of his environment, the other not so much. And so it's good to know the air we breathe simply by existing in Western secular culture in the year 2023. Because the first step in resistance is awareness, and we can't fight an enemy that we don't know exists. And so Paul is correcting the culture of the church that they have adopted from the culture at large, and it's one, again, of accomplishment, entertainment, and performance. And the engine, listen, the engine that drives that train, that drives culture in that direction, is pride in the human heart. That's why Paul says in verse 6, he doesn't want them to be puffed up against one another. The word literally means to be overinflated, right? Think of uh, Violet on Willy Wonka, she is puffed up, she's overinflated. They have a larger view of themselves than is actually true of them. Back in chapter 3, Paul talks about their jealousy and the strife among them, all a result of pride residing in the human heart. The believers in Corinth are looking at their brother and their sister, and instead of encouraging them from a place of Christ-like love, they are competing against them from a place of narcissistic pride. And the way that's playing out in the church was in this sort of tribalism that was forming amongst the members of the church based around the leader they most aligned with. And so Paul mentions himself here. He mentions two others in 1 Corinthians. For, for, um, for starters, you have Apollos, right? Which if we're just going by names alone, I'm following that guy. Like That's an awesome name. That is a, a dope, masculine name. And then you have Cephas, or as we better know him, Peter, right? And the early polls were in, and Paul was not looking so good, right? His campaign strategy needed some tweaking, and it's easy to see why. You sick Paul, who back in chapter 2 said he came not with lofty speech or with wisdom, that he decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except Christ and Christ crucified, and he comes with fear, he says, and trembling. You sick that guy in a culture that much like our own is obsessed with entertainment and performance and accomplishment, and you can see why Paul would be quick to be judged. 
You can see why he would be easy to unfollow or to cancel, you could say, in our world today. And I love Paul here in verses 1 through 5 because it's not like Paul says, I don't care what you think because I don't like what you think of me. Or I don't care what you think because I don't like what you think about me. Right? That's what I would say. That's what many of us would say who are much less emotionally mature than Paul. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, I don't care what you think because you're not even thinking about things rightly. And to be completely honest, what you think really doesn't matter at all. To steal a phrase, Paul isn't just trying to reshuffle the deck that they're playing with. He is inviting them to play another game entirely. And it's one not built on comparison, ego, or pride. It's built on their identity as a people of God and a faithfulness to the call they've received. So Paul says in verse 1, they should regard him and the other leaders among them as servants and stewards. Servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You can just read there the servants of the gospel, or, or excuse me, stewards of the gospel, or stewards of the good news about Jesus. And this is the whole other game Paul is inviting them to play. Paul is teaching the Corinthians here that he is not here for them. Paul is not called to gain the approval of others. He is not called to win friends and influence people. He is not called to entertain or to influence, and he is not called to be a political leader or a social activist. Paul is called to be a servant of the king and a minister of the gospel. So quickly, a a quick word on both of these terms. First, Paul says he's called to be a servant. The Greek word there is actually huperetes. Can you say that? From the back. Very nice. Huperetes. That's a specific term in the Greek. It means an under rower or an oarsman. And it's called an under rower because in those days, the guys rowing the boat would actually be under the deck, meaning they could not see where they were going. While the captain, on the other hand, the guy navigating the ship, doesn't seem like the best logic to me. He was above deck, right? He sees everything. And he's kind of giving instructions to the guys underneath the ship, row to your left, row to your right, or whatever they would say in those days. I'm not an oarsman myself. Uh, But that's how Paul sees himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. It is one who sees in part and who knows in part, and who is simply called to play his part and to play it well. While God, on the other hand, sees in full. God knows in full, and in his sovereignty and good providence, God is the one navigating the ocean that Paul knows as his life. Next, Paul calls himself a steward of the mysteries of God, or a steward of the gospel. The word literally means manager. It's more of a title than it is a noun. Well, I guess the title is a noun. Um, That's why we stick to the script, right? But it's it's really a manager. Think of Joseph via Potiphar's house, or Joseph even over uh, Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And the thing to notice here about a steward is that a steward has both dignity and accountability. And so they're not autonomous, independent persons like the owner of the house would be, but neither are they meaningless pawns. They are both under authority, and at the same time, they have authority. And that is how Paul views his relationship to the gospel of God's grace. The gospel is this gift that Paul has been entrusted with. It's this good news, but at the same time, one day he will have to give an account with what he has done with that good news. Has he invested it faithfully and, and it will go forth and bear fruit 30, 60, or 100 fold? Or will he bury his talent in the sand only to have all that he has already taken away from him? So Paul sees himself as a servant of Christ and a steward of the gospel, which is really just this beautifully freeing way to live, especially if you're a people pleaser such as me. And it's why Paul can say so openly in verse 3, I don't care what you think of me. Whether you love me or you hate me, really doesn't matter all that much to me. And just as an aside, 
I think any self-help book would probably agree with that nowadays. Right? Most of your self-help, culturally uh, pertinent uh, philosophy is going to say, don't think, take things too personally. Don't care what other people think about you. As long as you do you, you are true to yourself, you shoot your shot, so to speak, you are good. That is what life is all about. So I think the Instagram influencer and the Barnes & Noble bestseller would both agree with Paul here. But what Paul says next, that is what sets him apart from the cultural prophets of our day. Paul goes on in verse 4 to say he doesn't even care what he thinks of himself, right? And it's not because he says he thinks he's a dirtbag. The guy's like, I'm clean. My conscience is clear. I sleep really, really good at night. And even so, Paul says it doesn't matter because the value of my life isn't found in how happy or unhappy I am with myself or how highly or lowly I think of myself. It doesn't matter the car in my driveway. It doesn't matter the house I come home to. It doesn't matter the friends that I hang out with or the body that I see in the mirror or the followers I have on social media or the letters before or after my name. None of that matters. All that matters is is, that he has found faithful to the call he's received as a servant of the king and a steward of the gospel. And the logic here for Paul, the way Paul spells that out to to the reader here, is because the one who has called him is far more glorious than anyone else who could judge him. To use Jesus' line in Matthew 10, 28, Paul fears the one who can destroy both the soul and the body far more than the one who can only destroy the body. So Paul says in verse 5 that only God sees the beginning from the end. Only God can search the depths of the human heart. He sees what is hidden beneath the surface. As the psalmist says, even darkness is as light to him. Which gets to the fact that God doesn't even use the same grading system that we do, does he? Think about God's own words about himself to his prophet Samuel back in the book of 1 Samuel 16.7. So you may be familiar with this story. Samuel is this prophet who's been called by God to find the next king of Israel, and he's told it's among Jesse's sons. Jesse has, I think, seven sons, right? Maybe eight. Is David eight or seven? You can talk. Seven. Thank you. I wasn't sure if there were seven present and David was eight or six and David was seven. There's seven sons. Anyway, Samuel shows up. The, the firstborn son pops out. He's the oldest. He's the strongest. He's got the, the chiseled face, right? The big muscles. He looks like a leader. And Samuel's like, that's our boy. And God says, no, no, you have it all wrong. And then in verse seven, God says this about himself. Or he says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, motivation matters in the kingdom of God. And we live in a world where people do all sorts of right things, but for all the wrong reasons. And oftentimes, we are completely unaware of that, even when it's present in ourselves. The human capacity for self-deception is staggering, but not God, right? God sees us through and through. He knows why we do what we do. And when the credits roll and things fade to black, it is God and God alone who will be left to judge our lives. And if all of that wasn't enough to humble the Corinthians in these first six verses, Paul ends this section with three rhetorical questions that progressively cut pride down to the root by framing its source in ultimate reality. So in verse 7, Paul asks, For who sees anything different in you? That's kind of strange language. It's a weird translation. Another way to say that that might be more easily understood would be to ask the question, Who sets you apart? Right? Who makes you so awesome? The things you boast about, the things you're really proud of, the things you uh, shout about and want credit for, who made you that way? 
And the answer, of course, is God, which seemingly kind of leads us to the next question, and that's, what do you have that you didn't receive? And again, the answer, if you're uh, basing your life off of biblical theology and philosophy, James tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. All that we have and all that we are is a gift of God's grace. Which leads us to Paul's final question, which just kind of slams the door on any semblance of pride that they might still have at this point. Paul asks this, if then you received it, right? So he's assuming there, you did, right? You did. Even if you don't think you did, you did. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? And the only answer to that question is an honest one. It's because I'm prideful. Which puts the listener, the Corinthians here and us today, at a fork in the road where we have one of two options. We can either acknowledge our sin and we can repent of our sin, or we can continue in our rebellion only now there is no chance we're unaware of it. If ignorance was bliss before, we're no longer ignorant. And Paul's hope, of course, is that the confrontation of these questions would lead the Corinthians to repentance, that they would humble themselves and they would see not only their leaders, but also themselves as servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel. All right, so that's the first point. I feel like that's a little long for me, honestly. The rest will go a little bit quicker, I promise, so just hang on. Um, so let's, the second point, let's look at it here, is a nearsighted gospel. A nearsighted gospel. All right, so if you have your Bible in front of you, look with me at 1 Corinthians 4. This is verses 8 through 13. Paul says this, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Now, pause for a second. Paul's not actually saying they become kings there. I think we know that. He's saying, though, that they are living as if they were kings. And we know that because of Paul's next line. He says, and would that you did reign. Again, that's a little bit funny language for us. But what Paul's saying here is we wish you actually were reigning. Right? Which implies he's, he's joking. They are not kings. They are not reigning. Paul says we wish that you were because then we could rule with you. And this is Paul critiquing their way of life here. He's critiquing the way they relate to the world and all that it has to offer. So when Paul says they have all they want, he literally means, the translation there means, they are satisfied. They are without want. They are sitting at a table, there is food on the, on the table, and they can't eat another bite because they've had everything they can hold. They are not among the blessed who Jesus talked about in um, the Sermon on the Mount, who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're having their fill in the here and now rather than denying themselves in the here and now in favor of the life that is to come. And the Corinthians here were buying into what theologians call an overrealized eschatology. Can you say that? It's English. Overrealized eschatology, which is just a fancy way of saying that they were taking the blessings of Christ that were promised to us in the life to come and they are pulling those blessings into the here and now. Nowadays, we call this a prosperity gospel, and it sounds like some variation of the following. If you love God enough, or if you give God enough, or if you simply have enough faith that God will bless you, you will have fame and fortune now and for generations to come. And listen, that the suffering uh, that somehow Jesus promises to all who follow him, somehow you will be exempt from. Christ promises persecution and suffering in some form or fashion to all of his disciples. And the prosperity gospel says, you get a pass on that. You get a hall pass. Get out of jail free. All because you love or give or just have enough faith. 
And the Corinthians have fallen into a first century form of this lie, and Paul here is condemning it. First through sarcasm, when he says, we wish you were king so that we could reign with you. And then he's going to contrast it with his own apprenticeship and discipleship to Jesus. Paul goes on to say this for the rest of our little passage here. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, and you may have picked up on this at this point, but Paul uses juxtaposition, right? He uses contrast, and he does it because what is, uh, he juxtaposes what is wise and what is foolish, and the things of God and the things of this world. Things are often very black and white for Paul because his convictions are so strong. And this contrast here is meant to show us that there is no middle ground to stand on, right? There is no fence to sit on, and we can't hold both of these realities at the same time. To paraphrase Jesus, uh, again, you can't love God and money. You can't serve them both. So in chapter 1, verse 18, I'm going to give you a few of these juxtapositions as we walk just through the first four chapters. Chapter 1, verse 18, if you want to flip back a couple pages, Paul says this. He says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. A few verses later in verse 25, still in chapter 1, Paul says that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Then in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, The natural person, or the worldly person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And again, chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, Paul writes, If anyone thinks he is wise in this age, meaning in this world, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Makes no sense apart from the Spirit of God, right? He goes on to say, For the wisdom of this world is folly to God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, meaning they are foolish. And so we see this juxtaposition between the wisdom of the world looking foolish to God and the wisdom of God looking foolish to the world. And Paul continues that theme here in chapter 4, verse 10, when he contrasts the lifestyle of the Corinthians and how they're living in the world to the suffering that Paul and the apostles are experiencing. And so right after Paul says that the Corinthians, they've become kings, they've had their fill, they're modern day influencers, he says that the apostles, they've become a spectacle. Right? They're the people they wheel into the arena right before they die on the spot at the hand and the tooth of a lion. They are fools for Christ, he says. The Corinthians, sarcastically, he says, they're very wise in Christ. He goes on to say that we, the apostles, were weak, but you were strong. You were held in honor, but we in disrepute or dishonor. And while the Corinthians could have all they possibly want, Paul says, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. And Paul's point here is this. This juxtaposition, this contrast is meant to lead us to this uh, reality and this conclusion that if the things of God and the cross of Christ are foolish in the eyes of the world, then the Christian life ought to look foolish too. As I heard one pastor put it, we should live in such a way that our lives make absolutely no sense 
unless Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, meaning that our values and virtues, the way we spend our time and money, the way we relate to one another, it should make the world scratch its head. The world expects life to move up and to the right. It expects continual progress and thinks that if life isn't easier and more comfortable year after year, then we must be doing something wrong. But that does not align with the way of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It is what some have called a spirituality of descent. The Christian life is not about self-actualization. It is about self-denial and sacrificial love. And that for the good of others and the glory of God. In the words of John Mark Homer, we have to account for the future to make sense of the present and the kingdom of God. Because in God's kingdom, life is preceded by death and glory is preceded by suffering. Lastly, let's look at the way of formation. We're going to go verses 14 through 17 here. Paul writes this in verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you have very few fathers. For I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So Paul softens his tone a little bit. He stops with the sarcasm. And now he's making this relational and emotional appeal to the believers in Corinth. And Paul points out that while they have countless guides, one translation I looked at says 10,000 leaders, I believe it was, which is a bit hyperbolic from Paul. Right, but it's meant to highlight the fact that they have very few fathers in the faith. And as their father in the faith, Paul makes it personal, his command, his urge, he says, my plea to you is to imitate me. This is an imperative from Paul. It is a command. This is not a suggestion. And this command is meant to course correct the poor theology that the Corinthians had fallen into. And so rather than looking down at their leaders in judgment and across to their brother and sister with contempt, Paul is commanding them to look ahead to him as an attainable example to what discipleship in Jesus actually looks like. Then Paul says this in verse 17, That is why I sent Timothy to you, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Timothy here is both like and unlike the Corinthians. He is like them in the fact that he is a spiritual son to Paul. But he is unlike them because he's already imitating Paul. Paul says, if I can't be there, the next best thing is that I send Timothy because Timothy Timothy is already doing what he is calling the Corinthians to do. And I think there's a lot here we can learn about the process of formation or discipleship, you may say. But I think the main takeaway is this, that we often overcomplicate what God designed to be simple. It's been said that imitation is the finest form of flattery, but it is also the way that God designed us to transform and change. In fact, a little history lesson, you didn't know this, up until the Industrial Revolution, this is organically how children were educated, right? And that's why Paul sets the precedent here for, for his children in the faith, the Corinthians, to imitate him, their father in the faith. That's what a son does to his father, either for good or for bad. They imitate them. If you're a parent, you already know this. And I think you could say this, that God designed the human soul to imitate its way into his image, meaning that Christian discipleship isn't primarily about acquiring information or perfecting technique. It is about practicing, imitating, and habituating the ways of Jesus as they come to us through our spiritual fathers and our spiritual mothers. 
Unless we think this is some one-off from Paul, Paul repeats this command on more than one occasion in the New Testament epistles. So in 1 Corinthians 11.1, spoiler alert, it's coming in a few weeks, Paul says this, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Then in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 6, Paul commends the Thessalonians when he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Then in Hebrews 6, 11 through 12, a letter scholars likely think Paul wrote, the author says he wants his audience to have full assurance of hope until the end so they won't become sluggish, but would be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. And to top it all off, Jesus himself was a Jewish rabbi who chose 12 unassuming men to be his disciples and he called them to follow him. And the call to follow Jesus was literal before it was figurative or metaphorical. Right? The disciples literally followed Jesus around for three straight years, watching him and imitating him. And in so doing, they were formed into his image. So, what does that mean for us? What's the application here? I have two. One, if you're a Christian in here, if you're a believer who God has uh, taken a heart of stone, he's made it a heart of flesh, you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I think a good question for self-reflection will be to simply ask the question, is my life worth imitating? Would you tell the you of five years ago to imitate the you of today? Which takes discipleship to another level, doesn't it? Because it's no longer just about what we can pass on or the information that we know or the books we've read. It becomes about the kind of life we live in the kingdom of God. Could you say with Paul, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ? Ruth Haley Barton has this great line to leaders. And if you're going to disciple someone, you are a leader, right, to some degree or another. She says this. She says, the best thing you pass on to your people, and I would say sometimes the worst thing, is your own transforming self. So does your way of life, does your lifestyle, do your rhythms and routines, do they line up with Jesus of Nazareth? And if not, what needs to change? Lastly, if you are being discipled, I know the women have a discipleship program in place, and I don't say that to like mock it at all, but you do. Um, if you're being discipled or you're seeking to be discipled, I would simply ask you to consider, is the person discipling you worth imitating? I'm not saying are they perfect, but are they trying day after day to follow Jesus more in his likeness, more in his image, to be conformed, and thereby you would conform under them? Another way to ask that might be to ask the question, would I want to be like this person when I grow up? <laughs> and if not, then you might want to keep looking or just have a difficult conversation. To say it positively, I would encourage you to do this, to follow someone whose life is worth imitating, which is to say, follow someone who is following Christ. Paul's letter to us in chapter 4 is rich. There is a lot here to learn and a lot to cover. appreciate your time and patience, but I pray it forms us like it was intended to form the Corinthians, so that we see ourselves as servants and slaves, that we deny ourselves in this life in favor of the life to come, and we would be those who imitate Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us, God, through your word and through your spirit. God, we do pray that this time here, going forward, Lord, we would be formed more into your image for our joy and for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.